Hey folks, welcome to another episode of the Leadership Tales podcast. I'm Colin Hunter, I'm your host. Today is a special episode looking back at Series 4, and there's a number of different pieces we're going to be looking at in there, different interviews, Michelle Mace Curran, M. Weber, Gautha Makunda, Paul Day, Chris Tuff, and Michael Bungay-Stanier. And they'll share some fascinating insights and stories. There's a common theme here around playgrounds, about disruption, um, and they'll share some actionable tips, some fresh perspectives from their their lives and their experience, what they're working on now, and also advice to ponder. So let's dive in. So first up, Michelle Mace Curran, one of the most fascinating interviews. I've got to admit a bit of fanboy status here. Big fan of Top Gun, therefore to explore the world of, of that, of Top Gun, uh, to become a fighter pilot, but then to explore it from being a father of daughters, a woman doing that and the challenges she faced to get in there. And again, a lovely lady, value set, strong, hard worker. And and therefore, when we get into some of the, the detail about what it took uh, to do what she she did and it does now, then it it is amazing. So enjoy Michelle Mays Curran. I went through this pivot point, kind of the middle of my career, leaving Japan, going on to my next assignment, where I looked back on that three years and I was just like, holy crap, I can't do that for another 10 years. Like that, that's just not sustainable. And I also realized that I, I don't know what cued it, if it was that physical move to a new squadron, a new group of people back to the States. Um, but I was like, all right, no one, no one is going to fix this for me. No one's coming to save me if you want to use platitudes. But I was like, I, I have to fix this. This is me taking ownership of it. And as I looked back at that first assignment, I wasn't proud of it. I wasn't happy with it. And I realized that there had been all of these opportunities that had come up over those three years that would have been really good for me as a pilot and as an officer and as a person to grow and learn. But I would never volunteer for them. I would actually be in the back just praying I didn't get chosen for them because they came with a chance for me to fail in front of everyone. And I was so scared of that. And they were so outside my comfort zone. And so kind of the line in the sand I drew for myself is that I knew when those times popped up. I had that feeling of certain uncertainty in my stomach where I knew I should go after it, but I was scared. And it was really easy for me to see all those. I could have written a list of all the times I had let things pass me by over the last three years. I was like, okay, when that happens next, you're going to raise your hand. You're going to say yes to it. You're going to put your name in the hat to go do whatever the thing is. And so that was on the professional side. But I also adopted that kind of mentality in my personal life, in my hobbies. And I had all these things I had wanted to do I'd really wanted to get into technical mountaineering. It's something I'd always been fascinated by, but there's a barrier to entry. You have to have some formal training there and some skills and equipment and all the things. So I was like, why not now? So I started climbing mountains. I started running marathons. I traveled to Nepal by myself and did a, joined up with a group of people I didn't know and trekked Everest Base Camp. And yeah, it was just all these little things that I'd always wanted to do, but were uncomfortable. And I started doing them. And as I did that in my personal life and my hobbies, it started to build my confidence to do that in my professional life. And I still felt that feeling of unease. 
every time. But the more I did it, the more I started to see the rewards that came with each of those things and that feeling of of unease and that fear that was consuming me and paralyzing me before started to go away till it became the thing that I did. When that feeling of excitement came up where I'm like, oh, look at that cool opportunity. Um, An example that was really clear to me was about halfway through that next assignment. So I've been flying F-16s for what, six or seven years at that point. I saw an email that Poland was looking for American F-16 instructors to come fly there for the summer and teach their pilots. And that was one of those things that initially I was like, that sounds super cool. I get to live in Poland for an entire summer. I get to fly their F-16s, which have some cool stuff that ours don't have. They're newer. What an amazing experience. But then I immediately was struck by that gut punch of, I had just become an instructor pilot. Uh, There were plenty of people that had way more experience than me. Poland had never had a woman fly their F-16s. So I didn't know what their culture was like as far as would they welcome me with open arms or would I get you know, the side eye or would people not take instruction from me? And that was far enough into that journey, far enough removed from that moment where I'd been like, okay, you're going to start saying yes to these things that I had some perspective on it. And I immediately realized when I was having this internal conflict, what was happening. And I was like, why are you even second? Like, why are you considering not doing this? This is exactly the type of thing you've been trying to set yourself up for the last 18 months, two years. You've been doing all this legwork to get yourself to a level of confidence so you can go do something like this. So I went and there were there were times I could have definitely been more experienced, but I got through it. And it was still one of the most rewarding times of my career. It was such a cool experience. And it was that stuff that put me in a spot where I even thought about putting my name in the hat for the Thunderbirds because it was something I had always been intrigued by, but had also thought I was not good enough to go do. So let's go on to M. Weber. I mean, M is running a business that oh, I, I would kill for uh, in many ways. She's She's got that concept of learning, how you embed learning, the transfer of learning. And we met because of one of the products, Coach M, uh, but also just found out that she had connections to my area that I live in. She lives in Australia. She runs this amazing business. But it is this embedding of learning that I'm fascinated by. And the conversation today is about that and about her story, about how she's created this business that we all would love to to be part of and drive because that's one of the the holy grails of what we do in in leadership and learning is to to embed that transfer of learning i was always saying to my human team remember that it's not about you forming your relationship with the participant it's about you helping the participant or the learner in our cases build that relationship with themselves and it really is about helping that individual get underneath their thoughts, feelings, value, beliefs, fears, and needs, which we know are what controls our behaviors to then help people move forward. And there's a lot of talk about social learning and, you know, group learning. And I love that. And it's not that I think people shouldn't be interacting, but to some level to build those relationships, you have to have a healthy relationship with yourself and you have to be able to have those internal reflections that will help you move forward. So for me, I think it's a real contributor in the space of of leadership, of helping people build that reflection muscle. Um, because we're so busy, because we, you know, rarely take the time to slow down and think and 
plan things through. We think if I practice a skill, I'm changing my behavior. But actually, there's a phase in between practicing and then deciding to adopt it as part of who we are and how we show up as a leader. Yeah. And and what I'm seeing in learning at the moment is a lot of um, in those six to nine month journeys, people are focusing on the practicing and building the skill. Mm-hmm but not actually getting people to that point where they say, hang on a second, I'm going to make a commitment to actually adopt this into my leadership behaviors, into my way, into my role, into the way I show up in the world. So, so I think there's a, something to be said for that. So Gautam Makunda, <laughs> amazing interview. Uh, and there's a piece in here about how we talk about picking presidents. So some stories about the background, about patterns of life that lead people to be president, whether they've been working in particular uh, backgrounds. So if you take the bushes of this um, this world who have almost been worked up and groomed to that success, and they're also the ones that are unexpected. And the, the research and the data behind that and some of the insights into what it takes to be one of those leaders to be a president. But there's so many parallels to what we talk about in, in organizations as well. Brilliant minds, brilliant conversation, Gautam Makunda. We think of Ch- Churchill in the 1930s as the brave foe of appeasement, right? So he mm-hmm. said, right, you know, um, Nazism must be torn out root and branch because one cannot appease a tiger by feeding it cat's meat. So it's a wonderfully Churchillian quotation, right? Those sort yeah. of cadences and the words and things like that. Um, he never said it. Uh, hmm. I, I'm cheating. I changed one word in the quote. The word is Nazism. Hmm. The quote is actually Gandhiism must be torn out root and branch because one cannot appease a tiger by feeding it cat's meat. Wow. So when Churchill was known as a foe of appeasement, the appeasement mm. that he opposed was appeasement of, in, of Gandhi's Indian independence movement. Fascinating. If you use the same language to talk about the pacifist Mahatma Gandhi and Adolf Hitler, it is possible people will stop taking you seriously. Yeah. And that's exactly what happened to Churchill. When I teach, I, always tell, I tell, often tell students that there's a cheat code in my class. Um, when I ask a question, if you don't know the answer, you can always get out of it by saying, well, it depends on the context. Um, and so, you know, if we pick Churchill... Churchill outside of the context of Hitler is a disaster and Churchill inside the context of Hitler is the one is you know, one of the greatest heroes of the 20th century. Context matters greatly because, and what that tells us is that leadership is not a ranking problem. It is a matching problem. So ranking problems are where you say, you know, you, you look at your options and you, you, you take, you order them from best to worst and you pick the wor- and you pick the best one. That's a ranking problem. So it's like dating. Teenagers think of dating as a ranking problem, right? Teenagers want to date a supermodel. When you've grown up a little bit, hopefully, you realize that dating is actually a matching problem. You don't want there. You don't want some some like in, in, some hierarchy of breast stores because it doesn't exist. There is no mm-hmm. such thing. What you want is the right person for you. So when you're picking leaders, you don't want the best leader. You want the right leader the right mm-hmm. leader for your situation and your context. And when the situation changes, you may no longer, you know, that person may no longer be the right leader as Churchill found out when the British, when the British people turned him out as soon as the war was over. Mm-hmm. And so that idea that everything about picking leaders and what brings you success in a leadership environment is about context 
is I think may, maybe the most important thing you can learn about selecting leader about selecting leadership that there's no such thing as general purpose like oh well this person's charismatic they'd be a good leader nope hmm. that doesn't work. Paul Day, Group Head of Internal Audit at Standard Chartered Bank. Paul and I go way back. Uh, today we're going to focus in the clip around productive pressure, which is a crucial piece about pushing himself and others outside their comfort zone to, to see how they perform, but also learning how to lean into that discomfort on a regular basis. So we're going to hear a bit about how you do that and how he did it and his views on it. I look back at moments when I, um, when the opportunity in front of me pulled me outside of my comfort zone. Uh, and of course, uh, that's when um, when you find out most about, about yourself, what you're capable of, what those around you are capable of, how how to lead in those in those in those moments um, and as i've as i've got older and more experienced i find it um i find it super rewarding to find those opportunities for for my team you know what's the right next career opportunity you know what's the next stretch opportunity what might they uh, what might they develop you know from that from the opportunity in front of them um the uh, I, I think you, you you learn a little bit from doing a straightforward job very well. You 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 learn a lot and receive a lot of credit for doing difficult things very well. I actually think you uh, the greatest you know, um, satisfaction and reward is reserved for uh, things which are known to be broken or you know which are incredibly challenging and working out a way to somehow. Uh, address those somehow, fix those somehow, um, somehow turn it into a success. And you know, we learn we learn most about ourselves not by uh, not by doing the easy things, but by taking on the the difficult challenges, taking on the things that are hard. There's a sort of optimal pressure, isn't there? There's too much too much pressure is just wrong and unfair on people. Um, I remember typing the uh, the email footer into my into my Outlook settings say I'm sending this email at a time of my choosing. Yeah. And if it's outside your working hours, I don't expect you to reply. You know, of course, we want people to feel under some pressure. You know, we want to have some performance expectations. And we need to temper it with a suitable work-life balance, allowing people to do the things which are, you know, which are important to them. And some of those things will be, it will be outside work. And we absolutely must allow people to make time for that. And then there's Christoph. He's one of the most energetic people I've ever had the pleasure of sitting down with. You can't help but absorb that energy uh, as he talks in terms of what he does. He's the author of The Millennial Whisperer and Save Your Asks, which is all about building authentic relationships and connecting with people. So Chris shares in this clip about how he's been able to help others be the best version of themselves and achieve their professional goals through authentic connection. Enjoy. There's a massive void of authenticity in the world right now, and there's a void in connection. I think there's a relation to, to why that is. But and then you get a lot of these people that are like you and me that are writing books and speaking. And then when no one's looking, they're doing the exact opposite. And that to me is so important of walking the talk. And everything that I talk about, Colin, I practice. The other thing that I've done is I take 20% of all my time and I try to 
bring people along. It was it was a concept of tithing my time versus money mm-hmm. um, by a guy named Dan Miller, who kind of took me under his wing, a super successful. He's 75 years old author. And I was like, I'm going to do that. Right. Some of my most compelling stories aren't necessarily hobnobbing with the billionaires at Kelly's Leader's Surf Ranch. Right. It's actually my story of the waiter that I had in Turks and Caicos or the guy that came to redo my chimney who texted me the other day, a year and a half since we met. And he was at my house for like a month and a half. And he was super depressed and I would bring him dinners and lunches. And he texted me, he said, he's making half a million dollars redoing chimneys or my tattoo artist, Kiyoki, as you can see, anytime I have a defining moment, I have him freehand the symbolic piece of that. I actually just got my newest one, which is all about unlocking passions and dreams. It's a huge chess piece and was by far the most painful. But he's another guy. I helped him open his own his own shop. And, and let me just tell a quick story there, right? So mm. there's even a there's a saying that go to Chris Tuff for free stuff, like around Atlanta, mm. because I know someone for everything, right? Mm. And my unique abilities to connect in each one of these nuances is really what makes me such a good networker. But I do it in a way that when someone tells me what their dream is, which I think the most important question you can ask anyone is what's your dream? What, what mm-hmm. fires you up? When I hear that, I can usually take some form of action through an introduction or an idea to help them take action, to, to make, take a step towards that. And so this guy, Kiyoki, who I met, totally randomly as I was coming out of my rock bottom, I wanted to signify one of my main points, which is my first three rings. Uh, My twin brother introduced me to this idea that no one's allowed in your hula hoop except for your wife and your two daughters, Chris. Hmm. Don't let anyone else in it Um, because people are going to try to hop in it. I was like, I love that. I'm going to get a tattoo of a hula hoop for each one of my girls, which are these three lines. And I went to five tattoo artists, Colin, and no one could actually draw a straight line around. It's a very difficult thing to do it around an arm. So three of the five tattoo artists that I'd seen said, you got to see this guy from Hawaii, Kiyoki. (laughs) And so I get in with Kiyoki and he does this amazing piece. And it was once again, like one of these um, these authentic connections that happened in the moment that I kind of took with me. And we, we have since become really good friends. And he's one of the guys that I've taken under my wing. And so through the pandemic, I'm like, Kiyoki, you got to start your own shop, like enough paying the man, like, let's just do this. I'll help you open it. Right. He calls me all of a sudden, right towards the end of the process. And he, he caught, he was very upset. And he's like, Chris, I, you know, I hate to reach out to you, but I just got the worst news of yet, which is that the health inspector came by and they said that I couldn't get my license unless I redo the fabric on all of my 10 tattoo chairs from black to white. And Chris, that's going to be like $15,000 for that vinyl upholstery. Um, So I think I'm just going to give up. I go, Kiyoki, you're not going to believe this, but I just so happened to know the number one vinyl upholstery company 
in the U.S. Not only that, but they're in Atlanta. Let me make a couple calls. I call my friend Heather, who is the COO of the largest vinyl upholstery company in the U.S. I tell her the situation. Calling in 24 hours, he had brand new vinyl upholstery for free on all of his chairs. Wow. And I use that as an example of that's what I'm talking about in terms of practicing what you preach. But also, I think it's so important that we bring along, we put ourselves on equal footing with all of those around us. And so the one thing that I'm constantly looking for in any interaction is that is that authentic connection and a little bit of that curiosity, because there's something we can learn from everyone. And finally, Michael Bogustanier, or MBS, as it's easier to, to write and, and call him by. But Michael is, is a good friend. He's a deep thinker, wise beyond his years. And we'll talk about some of the years in the episode. But there's something he's learned uh, and he's leaned into now as he talks about being an elder. And there's some work in the, in the background here about the concept of the elder, where the elders grow, they grow wisdom. Um, and it's similar to the ancestors uh, concept, which is how do we become better ancestors? So he's an incredible coach and author, a speaker who has been teaching others the coaching habit for years. And to close out this, our episode today, Michael will share a bit about the legacy and how he hopes by living his authentic life, he'll be able to help leave the world in a better place. Thank you, Michael. I assume in a hundred years time, Nobody will have heard of me. Nobody will know me. Nobody will remember me. My impact in the world will have just blown away. And mm -hmm. I'm totally fine with that. Like, yeah. I love, I love uh, the Shelley poem, Ozymandias, Ozymandias. I can have you pronounce that. And it's like, mm -hmm. look upon my legacy, ye mighty, and weep. And the lone sands of the desert stretch to the horizon. I mean, it, it all, yeah. it, 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 civilizations rise and fall. And I'm mm -hmm. no civilization, but, you know, my, I, it's like I'm not going to be remembered in a hundred years' time. Yeah, and I find that not depressing. I find that really freeing because I'm like, mm. so go for it. <laughs> it doesn't matter. <laughs> it's like Get that uh, video yeah. back out from my early youth. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so in part, I think about legacy as what's the best thing I can do that mm. is the, the best expression of myself and kind of mm. helps pull me forward into the next best version of me, but also what contributes to the world to make the world a better place. It's a numbers game. And if you can think about how do you make your best contribution to the world in a way that serves you, is thrilling for you, but is important and serves the world, then everybody wins. I think there are these moments where we come to crossroads you know, when you when you finish university, I think you're at a, a crossroad or finish school um, mm -hmm. where you're like, okay, what am I doing? Am I going to be part of capitalism? <laughs> am I going to be not part of capitalism? Yeah. Am I going to work for myself? So there's all of that. Then there's the classic 35-year-old so-called midlife crisis moment where you're like, okay, I've, I've been, I've done 10 years of adulting. Where the hell am I? <laughs> and how did I, don't I end think I've up done here? 10 years. I think yeah. I've a lot less than that. <laughs> And then there's the place where you and I are. I mean, Colin, you're, mm. you're very close to being an empty nester. I, when you hit the kind of 50s and 60s, you, if you have kids, your kids are, are gone. So you're like, now what? That was a key focus and they're no longer a key focus. For many mm. people, they're like, I'm at, I'm at a certain peak in my career and 
you know, that's coming to an end. I can feel that that arc is coming to an end. And I have another good 15 to 20 years left. What am I doing mm. with that? Mm. And that's when you can either go, well, I'm just going to go find a way of playing golf uh, on the regular, which is you know, fine, but I'm not sure that gives a whole lot to the world. Or you're like, okay, so what's my next thing? How do I find something? And in the How to Begin book, I say, you know, find a worthy goal, something thrilling and important and daunting, which brings three things into tension. This what lights you up. Mm-hmm. Secondly, what gives more to the world than it takes. And thirdly, what takes you to your own learning edge so that you can kind of continue to crack yourself open and grow. Mm. 